Thanks for tuning in to the Meadowview Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a church who seeks to grow in Christ, gather in community, and go in obedience to the Great Commission. All right, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, grab those. Acts chapter 15, picking up where we left off last week. We uh, made it a whopping six verses last week, so hopefully we can get through more of the chapter this week. If you need a Bible, there should be a black hardback ESV somewhere near you in the pew, and if you need a Bible, that's our gift to you. Feel free to take that with you today. You will need your Bible because we, as you can tell, have no screens, and that means either uh, we're the tallest steeple in a five-mile radius, or I said something very wrong last week. So uh, we're going to go with tallest steeple, hopefully. So uh, if you're turning there, Acts chapter 15, we will be bouncing around into several different verses. If you have a guide, uh, I put one out there in the lobby for you. We'll show you some of those verses at the top. So it will help you follow along. We started the doctrine of salvation. Chapter 15 is the first ecumenical council where uh, apostles and elders are gathered together in the church of Jerusalem. And they're discussing the doctrine of salvation and whether or not Gentiles coming in need to be circumcised. And so it's kind of a big deal. And they're beginning to debate. And so the doctrine of salvation is under debate. Now, a few years back as a youth pastor, I had the esteemed privilege of sitting in a speech and debate tournament for middle school and high school students. Let me rephrase that. I had the opportunity to have my arm twisted as a youth pastor to sit at a speech and debate tournament for middle school and high school students. And so what you would do is you would go in and you would sit as a panel and you had no clue what these kids were going to talk about or debate about, but they were on the clock. And they would sit there and they would discuss things in front of you like, which is better, eat to live or live to eat? That's a deep thought. I'll let you think about that for just a second. So as we're jumping into Acts chapter 15, none of y'all like that? Some of y'all would have been like, live to eat, right? I would have thought that I would have got at least an amen from that one. Okay, thank you. So as we got into the doctrine of salvation, there was, very, there was a very important thing that we noticed, that there was believers, as Luke pointed out, that were from the Pharisee party. This means they were Pharisaical believers. And the danger in that is that they believed that there was something that they must do or not do in order to have an identity with God. And it was not based on who they are in Christ. So there's Pharisaical believers even today that have their identity grounded in what they do and don't do for God rather than in who they are in Christ. Christ makes us a new creation. And so as we debated this and as they debated it, we talked about the fact that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We're saved by grace alone. Grace is a gift. We're going to talk about that some more through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is not by works so that no man can boast. In Romans chapter 3, we have a very famous verse that a lot of us can quote, but I want to read on either side of that. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip over just a second. Romans chapter 3, Paul is discussing this idea of salvation, that we are all sinners and we are all in need of grace, and it is all done by Jesus Christ. He says this in verse 22 of chapter 3. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. And that's something you underline right there. By grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. To be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. 
It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Beautiful verses here written by the Apostle Paul that we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but there is a grace that is a gift. It is a gift. Salvation is a gift, and that's what we're going to talk about, that those who have received it by faith have received this gift. Now, it's difficult for us as we think about through faith. Through faith is the messy part. We understand that there's a justification, but what about the sanctification part of our salvation? That there is a walking and walking dependence upon the Lord. William Newell, in his commentary on Romans, he says this, but faith is not trusting or expecting God to do something, but relying on his testimony concerning the person of Christ as his son and the work of Christ for us on the cross. After saving faith, the life of trust begins. Did you hear that part? After saving faith, the act of trust begins. Trust is always looking forward to what God will do. But faith sees that what God says has been done and believes God's word, having the conviction that it is true and true for ourselves. What a beautiful thought of what faith is, that there is a saving grace that is a gift, that through faith, that there is a faith that then sustains us as we walk in trust. As he would say, it's not just trusting and expecting him to do something in a hopeful manner. It is a relying on the fact that what he has already done was accomplished on our behalf. That is a deep thought about what saving faith is. Hebrews 11.1 says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. There's an assurance that the price that Jesus paid on our behalf is going to be fully revealed one day. Isn't that amazing? That there is nothing you could do. You are, say, you are a sinner. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but the grace of God is a gift. And it is given to those through faith, that as they walk through faith, this trusting, relying faith, that what God has done on my behalf is justifiable, that we can now walk by grace through faith in Christ alone. So grace is a gift. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's through faith alone. It's a God-given avenue where we rely on the finished work of Jesus Christ in Christ alone, the one who made a sacrifice of all sacrifices to bring those who are far from God back into a right relationship with him. That brings, here's three big church words, justification, redemption, and propitiation. These are deep words, and let me explain them to you. Justification gives you the imagery of the courtroom. And so if you walk into a courtroom and you stand before a judge and you are guilty, you stand there condemned unless there is someone to take your sentence for you. And Jesus Christ took that for us. We have been justified. He talks about redemption, which is the imagery of the slave market where someone was purchased and then set free. That you have been purchased from the bondage of sin and slavery. That you had no control over that, but someone purchased you and then set you free. And then propitiation in our place that Jesus Christ paid the ultimate sacrifice that he was the appeasing sacrifice that covered the sins of all who would believe. Now you take those three giant theological statements for just a minute and you tell me what works you did to earn any of those. None. 
salvation, this doctrine of salvation that this early church is debating, is debating on the fact that there is nothing that we do to make ourselves better to be right before God, but that Jesus Christ has paid the ultimate sacrifice for us, that by grace we are saved through faith in Christ alone. So through Jesus Christ, the problem of man's guilt before God is justified. The problem of our sin slavery has been finished because we are set free. And the problem of us offending God because we cannot make enough sacrifices has been atoned for by the finished blood of Jesus Christ. What a beautiful thought as we get into salvation. So let me pray, and then we'll pick up Acts chapter 15, verse 7. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word today. We ask, God, that you would, by the power of your indwelling spirit, lead and guide us into all truth, that you would reveal to us through your word, your spoken revelation, and that through that it would change us, Lord, that you would mold and you would shape our hearts, that you would make us more inclined to listen to you and not to the things of this world. Father, we thank you for salvation. We thank you for grace. We thank you for a gift. We thank you for faith, saving faith that then goes on to sustaining faith, Lord, that you would sustain us as we walk through this world and as the mud of this world seems to want to cling to us, God, that you would continue to help us see that we are washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your saving work in Christ alone, that we are here today to worship you and worship you alone. Father, we thank you for your word in Christ's name. Amen. First thing I want you to see is the doctrine of salvation. Last week was debated. This week is declared. Picking up verse 7. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. This is God's word. As we get into this, we see in verse 7 that there was much debate in the church. This is something that we have to become aware of early on. As we gather together as a body of believers, there is something that was true some 18 years after Christ ascended and is true today, that there is debate in the church. There is arguments, there are disagreements, there are frustrations inside the church, and sometimes people who are believers do not see eye to eye, do not say amen to that, right? This happens, and it shows us that these men were willing to gather together in debate to talk about the important issues. They were talking about doctrinal issues, They were debating 
doctrine, not the color of the drapes or the color of the carpet or the color of the walls or how we do this or should we have paper with all of our words on it or should we have screens that show the words. They're not debating things like that. No, they're debating the doctrine of salvation, how important it is for everyone to understand that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so to bring this to a court system, you have these witnesses that step up. First, you have Peter, the rock, the one who walked really close to Jesus. You've got Peter that stands up. Then you've got Paul and Barnabas who have been going on these missionary journeys. They're going to stand up. And then you've got James, who is the half-brother of Jesus. And James, as history tells us, wasn't even a believer until after the resurrection. And so what do you got to do to make your brother believe that you're God? You've got to defeat death, and that's what Jesus did. And so then he was like, okay, I guess that you really were, because I thought you were crazy. We tried to drag you out of the house, but no, you're God. And so now he's leading the church in Jerusalem. And so you've got these heavy hitters coming to take, hey, this is what salvation is. So Peter steps up, and he says this. After there had been much debate, verse 7, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed them by faith, cleansed their hearts by faith. Peter gets up and he gives four doctrinal statements of what salvation is. So the first one he says is salvation is by God's own choice. This was God's choice is what Peter says. Now, you can't miss this. He says, he says this, you know, brothers, that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel. Did you get that? God made a choice. God had a plan. This is God's sovereignty at work mixed with man's responsibility. How were those who are sinners going to hear the good news of the gospel? By the mouth of disciples. So here's my question today. How are those who are far from God to hear the good news of the gospel today? What is God's choice? That by our mouths, we would proclaim the good news of the gospel. That it is not by works that we are saved. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That we would be bold witnesses to step up and say it is God's own choice. Now, obviously, Peter is saying this because of what happened in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius. If you flip back there, you'll see the story of what happened with Cornelius and how God's sovereignty led him to proclaim the good news to Gentiles. So how are people to hear if they are not told? How are people to turn to the Lord without someone preaching is what Paul would have said in Romans. So no doubt, Acts chapter 10, verse 34, Peter is recalling this. So Peter opened his mouth. And said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So he's like, there's no distinction here. This is what he's just said in Acts 15, going back to Acts chapter 10. And now in verse 44 through 48, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell. And all who heard the word and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and exalting God. And Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. 
This was what Peter is referring back to. He's like, look, do you not remember it was God's choice to reveal himself to the Gentiles by the mouth of the disciples? Listen, church, this is still God's choice today. God works by his sovereignty, revealing himself to sinful man through the mouths of his disciples. We all have a part to play in bringing people towards Jesus Christ. So number one, it's by God's own choice. Number two, salvation is inclusive of all people. He says that he makes no distinction between us and them. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. It's for all people. It doesn't matter if you're from this nation or this nation, if you have this color skin or this color skin, if you speak this language or this language. It doesn't matter. God is going to reveal himself to all flesh, all peoples, all Gentiles, to redeem them to himself for his own glory. And it's not a matter of an outside sign of circumcision, but an inward sign of a regenerated heart, a circumcision of the heart. This is new covenant language. Jeremiah 4, 4 would say, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire. There is something that happens in salvation. It is, it is a gift by God's own choice that regenerates the hearts of man. He writes his word on their hearts, and it is for all people. Number three, salvation is a gift, not a weight we carry. Salvation is a gift. And so in verse 10, he says, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear it? Why would you tell them that they have to do these things and follow these rules and follow the entire law when you know that we can't even follow the entire law? And the entire history of the Old Testament, as you read through, is how Israel failed over and over and over because they couldn't keep the letter of the law. So why would you now tell them that they've got to do something that we couldn't do? Why would you tell them that salvation for them is a weight that they've got to carry? This is why Jesus shows up. And in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, these might be familiar to you. He says, come to me. All of you who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus Christ does the work on our behalf. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ. It is not by work so that no man can boast. Number four, salvation is never earned. It is never earned. There's so many people who are taught a false doctrine that believe that there are things that I must do to make myself look good before I can come to God. And this simply is not true. You can never earn God's grace. It's just a gift. He says in verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Peter says, look, we couldn't keep the law. We're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God, and we believe that we're going to be saved by grace through faith, just as they will. It is not our own doing. You see, an obstacle for the early church as they're gathering and as they're discussing this is an obstacle that is, is for us today as well. It's the inability to fathom how abundant God's grace is. Because a lot of times we put restrictions on God's grace. We put restrictions on, oh, God could never save that person. Oh, God, oh, look at what they're doing. 
God's grace. We cannot fathom his grace. We think that some people are too far out of his reach. Let me tell you, no one is out far, is so far that he can't reach them. Everyone is within God's reach. Everyone is in reach of his grace. And the question is, as God wants to proclaim his good news, are we a mouthpiece that he can use? Are we someone who are we're bold enough in our faith to say, you know, let me tell you something. This is the only hope that we have. We proclaim Jesus Christ. And so after Peter gets up, you get Paul and Barnabas and then James, who declare the doctrine of salvation. So verse 12, and all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Verse 13, after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, or Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his own name, for his name. And with the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return, I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. So what James says is, listen, guys, this has come up over and over and over in the prophets. And so he quotes Amos as an example. This is what is absolutely necessary when we're looking at doctrine. There are so many testimonies and experiences that are given, but then James does what's necessary. He takes the experiences and the testimonies that are given by these godly men, and then he looks at them through the lens of Scripture. This is so important. Look, there's all kinds of doctrine and theology that is taught in all kinds of churches that does not align with the Word of God. And it may sound good, it may be pretty, it may be something we want to believe, it may be something that tickles our ears. But this is what James does. Listen, this is, this is the word of God. And all these experiences and all these testimonies need to align with it. And so this is what doctrine is. Aligning with scripture. Testimonies and experiences that do not align with scripture are not doctrinal. Do you understand? So we need to be fervent in how we interpret God's word. Not reading ourselves into the text, but reading Christ out of the text. Christ, where are you in this? Where is your truth? Not where do I fit into this? So verse 19. Peter, uh, James says, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. And from ancient generations, Moses had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. James makes a shift here, and we're going to talk about it in just a minute, but he makes a shift that those who receive grace will produce a fruit. Those who receive grace, you will see a fruit that is produced, and part of that fruit comes from the pruning that takes place in one's life. That, hey, there are some things that you should probably abstain from now if you want to produce a fruit that is lasting. If you want to see God work inside your church and inside your heart and inside your home, there's probably some things that you should abstain from because that will give the Spirit more access to produce a fruit in your life. And so he says, listen, we're going to write to them these things because those who have received God's grace bear the fruit of repentance. Those who received God's grace, you will see the fruit of repentance in their life. Those who have received God's grace, you will see a fruit of obedience in their life. 
Those who have received God's grace, you will see a fruit of unity in their life with other believers, even if they do disagree. So the second one is the doctrine of salvation delivered. It's delivered. Let's pick up verse 22, Acts chapter 15. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Bersabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with their fellow letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to you, to the Holy Spirit, and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual morality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Don't you like how it just ends that? If you do this, you'll be good. Farewell. Toodles. Goodbye. And they're, and they're sitting there thinking, but I like my steak medium rare. What about that? I like a little bit of blood. Anybody like a little bit of pink in their steak? Okay, good. One person. Awesome. All right. Verse 30. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered a letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So the, the word was delivered back. The doctrine of salvation was delivered back. He says it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. What James is saying is that this was a unified body of elders and apostles led by the Holy Spirit and his instruction to encourage you that this is what you should do. This is how you should live out your faith. Now, we remember the doctrinal danger we talked about, that there's a doctrinal danger of having your identity grounded in what you do and don't do for God rather than in who you are for Christ. Here's the other doctrinal danger that we run into is when we focus and when we care more about opinions and preferences and we do not produce a grace-filled community. When we care more about our preferences and our opinions than we do formulating a grace-filled community. He's like, listen, you need to go and you need to do these things, and there's a reason for it because it will strengthen the church and it will strengthen you. Sometimes we focus way more on external conformity than we do inward change. There's an obstacle for the early church was to care more about their practice of their religion than the proclamation of the gospel. Can I tell you, there's, there's a fear for us today as well that we can become more fixated on how we practice our religion Sunday in and Sunday out than we do about the mandate that's been placed on all of us to proclaim the gospel to the nations. We can care more about what happens 
in the function and the preferences and the styles of our Sunday mornings than we do about those who are lost and dying in a world that we go in and out of each and every week. We need to be a church that cares more about those who need to come to Christ. Alexander Strauch, he writes a book called If We Bite and Devour, and probably one of my favorite books of all time. It uh, talks about the tongue, and it talks about how people use the tongue in the church in a harmful way and how basically it's cannibalism in Christianity. And after I read that book, I, I just didn't talk to anybody for like a solid week. I just didn't, I didn't, I don't know if I have anything good to say, right? If you don't have anything good to say, then don't say, yeah, that's pretty much it. So he says this, Christians still argue and separate over topics of debate that Paul refers to as opinions or disputable matters. These are not fundamental doctrines or issues of moral failure, such as lying, stealing, and sexual morality. Rather, these are secondary issues of personal conscience and conviction, such as Sabbath-keeping, celebrating Christmas, drinking alcohol, dancing, lifting hands in worship, hanging pictures of Jesus on the wall, honoring ancestors, schooling children, proper dress and proper hairstyles, forms of entertainment, recreational choices, and even the use of leavened or unleavened bread for communion. These are things that people debate about, not doctrinal things. Just as in the first century, Christians today often exhibit arrogant, harsh, judgmental attitudes towards those with whom we disagree regarding these issues. It's all too easy to fight and divide over peripheral matters of lifestyle and traditional religious practices. It is disgraceful that some Christians cannot praise God with their fellow brothers and sisters in worship because of disagreements over such disputable matters. We must remember that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. He says, so then let us pursue what makes peace and for mutual upbuilding. Now, as James writes these things to abstain from, he does it for the purpose of mutual upbuilding. And so he says, you should abstain from blank for fruitful harmony in the church. There are times when there are going to be weaker brothers, and we're going to turn to, to Romans chapter 14. There are going to be people that you need to abstain from things around because it's harmful to the unity of the body. Now, the early Christians here, the Gentiles, they, their lifestyles were completely different than the lifestyles of the Jews. They participated in all kinds of things, and they ate food offered to idols, and they ate steaks that were cooked medium rare, and they did all kinds of things that the Jews were so offended by. And so he says, listen, if you will abstain from these things, then you will be able to have a common fellowship together of both Jews and Gentiles in the same gathering vicinity. We're not always going to agree, but there are some things that we can do so that there's harmony in the church. The second one is that you need to abstain from blank for the holiness, for fruitful holiness of a Christian. Harmony and holiness. And the thing that he mentions there that leads to personal holiness is sexual immorality. Sexual morality all throughout the rest of the New Testament is condemned. And we'll get to those verses in just a minute. But he's saying, look, there's two things I need you to do. He lists all these things, but it's for harmony in the church and for holiness in the Christian. Romans 14, 1 through 3, and then I'll jump down to 13 through 19. As for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. 
One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let's, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Verse 13, Therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. I know that I'm persuaded that in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean if anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. But what you eat, do not destroy. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbringing. Here's what James says that then is going to be repeated by, by Paul to the Romans. There are some things that you need to abstain from around certain people so that you can keep the harmony of the church. If someone's offended by this, don't rub it in their face. Don't cause quarrels. Don't cause dissensions where there doesn't need to be dissensions. Walk in faith and love with one another. But also pursue the abstaining from sexual morality for fruitful holiness. We live in a culture where more and more young believers feel that it's okay to participate in sexual immorality and be okay with God. I mean, these, these are the statistics. This is where it's going because of what is being shown all the time on, on TV and on the Internet and what they're watching, what they're listening to. Oh, that, that's okay. That, that's, not, that's not a big deal. But all through Scripture is saying, hey, you need to abstain from this. You need to abstain from this. You need to abstain from this. So Ephesians 5, 1 through 3 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual morality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Shouldn't even be named among the saints. 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20, Paul says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also, will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Here's what Paul says. You got the, the justification in the courtroom. You've been justified. You are set free. The guilt is gone. You have been redeemed. You have been purchased back from sin slavery. So why would you then go on living as if you're enslaved to sin, thinking that sexual immorality is okay? 
No, you have been bought at a very high price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So all of this is said to the church for fruitful repentance. Repentance produces fruitful harmony and fruitful holiness. This is why Martin Luther, when he nailed his 95 Thesis to the Wittenberg Cathedral, he said this, When our Lord and Master Jesus said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Yet it does not mean solely inner repentance. Such inner repentance is worthless unless it produces various outward mortification of the flesh. He said, look, it's useless if you say, yeah, I repented, but there was no fruit that ever came from it. There should be a change. Those who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ alone bear fruit in walking in repentance. And that fruitfulness shows itself in fruitful harmony in the body and fruitful holiness in the believer. As I finish out this chapter, verses 36 through 41, the third one is the discouragement of church disagreements. We started this chapter with a church disagreement, and we end this chapter with a church disagreement. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let's, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement. So they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. You see this section of verses, and it's super disturbing, isn't it? I mean, if you really think about all that we've read over the past few weeks and months, Paul has been a voice of evangelism. And Barnabas has been a voice of encouragement. And through the voice of evangelism and the voice of encouragement, churches have been planted in city after city after city. Paul has been stoned. They have been chased out of different towns. But they want to go back and strengthen the brothers. And now there's a sharp disagreement because they decide to not take, Paul decides not to take John Mark. Now, we know John Mark had different things to do. He wrote the gospel that bears his name. And he did a great work for God, but there was a sharp disagreement. This sharp disagreement, the translation means that there was a violent explosion of controversy. You know what that is? Maybe you've been in a conversation with a good friend, and you blew up on each other. Has that ever happened? You're afraid to, you're afraid to admit that, aren't you? You've had a really good friend. You've been, you've been in the foxhole together. You've lived life together, and all of a sudden, one day it just blows up. And you're like, I'm not going to talk to that person anymore. You know what? Forget them. This is what happened in the church, and it is so discouraging, isn't it? Now, later on, we see where amends are made later on in Scripture. But what I want you to understand is that we can learn some things from this. First, that church agreements, disagreements happen even when we seek unity and harmony and holiness. Sometimes church disagreements happen, even when we're seeking unity and harmony and holiness. Second, Christians ought to imitate the kind-heartedness and forgiving spirit of Barnabas. Yeah, he left us, but let's, let's bring him along again. 
He was an encourager. He was, he was willing to forgive. We should learn from that, but we should also learn from Paul. Paul was willing to forgive, but he was not willing to be hindered in his mission. Paul was willing to forgive, but not willing to be hindered in his mission. Faithful missions trumps emotional feelings. Faithful missions trumps emotional feelings. They both carried on in their mission. One went this way and one went this way. Here's what I want you to understand. If you've got church hurt, if you've got disagreements, if you've got things that have happened in your past, don't let that derail the mission God has for you. Continue in the faith. God's grace is a gift. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. It's by his choice that one day, you heard the gospel proclaimed from someone's mouth and you received by faith, not just saving faith, but redeeming faith, walking faith in Christ alone. And one day, that hope, that faith we have will be a reality, that the finished work of Christ has covered all of our sins. Let me ask you, have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you come to a point where you realize it's not your goodness that gets you right before God, but you need to fall on your face and repent of the sins that are in your life? Maybe you've been walking with the Lord for a while and you've allowed sexual morality and different things to creep into your life that has caused uh, disunity and unfruitfulness of holiness in your life. Maybe you should repent of those things today. God, I want to be right. I want to be a man or a woman of repentance, walking faithfully with you. Can we respond this morning? Can we pray? Gracious Father, as we come to you, as we conclude the time of we've had in your word, we would ask, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts. That by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would move us to lives of repentance. Move our churches to lives of harmony. Move our hearts to lives of holiness. That we would begin to bear fruit because we're willing to do the pruning that needs to take place in our lives. Father, if there's anything in my life or anything in the lives of those who can hear me right now that is hindering fruitful, spiritual fruit in their life, Lord, that they would prune it today. They would repent of it. Father, we thank you for your salvation. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Will you stand? Will you respond? Thanks for listening. It is our prayer that this message has helped you grow in your walk with Christ. Go to our website, meadowviewbaptist.com, or subscribe to hear more sermons like this, or to get more information about how to be involved at Meadowview Baptist.